0: Good evening, everyone. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy that is so sufficient for everything that we need. And it's you that we want to focus. It's you that we want to hear about. So, Lord, we ask that you would just really teach us your ways tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you uh, have your Bibles, please open with me uh, to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 9 through 15. That's 9 through 15. It's interesting when we think about prayer um, that we should have to teach on prayer, as Jesus describes here in Matthew 6, verse 9 through 15. And, and, and it's the things that are important in prayer, They're things that he has addressed, things that Again, his disciples asked him that they might know how to pray. Luke tells him, show us how to pray. And and in Luke, it describes those questions and those answers and that responses. It's a parallel passage. Now, Jesus gives his disciples, and this is important to understand, uh, example to follow. It's never meant to be exact in a certain way, to be liturgy, uh, just repeated week in and week out in the church it just has never been God's plan. But these are elements. These are things that are important. These are parts of prayer. And we find that the saints in the past, they would follow these. Now, look with me in our text. Again, it's Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. And it begins there, pray then in this way. Now, the, the contrast is, is to the vain repetition, if you remember last week they kept repeating the same words again and again and again, almost like counting rosary and going through. Or we used, again, the example of the the prophets of uh, of Baal. They they would just cry from day and night, and then they would cut themselves. The vain repetition, repeating themselves over and over again. Not necessarily in a song where you might sing a chorus six times, but when you're doing it for hours and hours, it's just mindless chanting. So this is a a contrast. This is how you would pray. And even the Jewish people prayed over and over and over mindlessness. Now it's this Sunday that we're going to be doing communion and why that seems like a right turn. Many churches have, have chose not to have communion every week because sometimes people just take it for granted. It doesn't mean anything to them. It becomes a mindless routine. It's something we do. It's a tradition. And I've always encouraged people, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me, is what Jesus said. So it's something we can do at home, we can do at the park, we can do it here. And we choose to do it twice a month here. But when we do it, we need to connect with our minds. We need to connect with our spirits because it's about Jesus. And see, it's the same thing here with prayer. It's our spirits must connect with him. So what he's doing is commanding his disciples to pray in this way rather than simply pray this. Pray in this fashion. With these thoughts. And that's what we're going to see is in, in verse 9 again. Our Father... Who are in heaven. So he's saying that we are to direct our prayers to the Father, our heavenly Father. And what a contrast that is. In fact, in, in Israel, in the Middle East, the Arab countries as well, they would cry out, Abba Father, as I mentioned before. It's Aramaic, it would be a, a common thing, everyday language, it was spoken by Jesus. But the Jews rarely addressed God as their Father. But Jesus did. Every prayer that is recorded, except for one. Let me show you that prayer. It's in Mark fifteen thirty four. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani," which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only prayer that he doesn't use the term of the Father. He's concerned about the Father's will, but he doesn't use that that word, that prayer. And it's important to understand, prayer involves worshiping, that is expressing honor and worthiness to our Heavenly Father. And you know what? It's communicating it openly. What I mean by that is, if we're in our home, we can pray openly to God, we can pray openly again when i mentioned last week in a restaurant that we leaned our heads together as a family and we pray together as a family not calling attention to ourselves this is important to understand but whatever you do at home you should not be ashamed of it so prayer involves worshiping expressing the honor and worthiness to our heavenly father even for those who cannot relate to to God or a father in a in an earthly sense, those have had bad fathers, bad relationships. They can still relate to a a heavenly father who will be a father that they can never ever imagine. Be everything that they could ever need. Now the idea of, of praying to God is as our Father conveys a really authority and warmth and intimacy and and loving the loving Father's care, that you can boldly go to him, you can speak to him. You don't need to yell at him, that he hears and he's already working. And it's while he's in heaven, it reminds believers of his sovereign rule over all things. He he rules from the heavens. Jesus, again, this is important, invites his disciples into an intimacy of God and the Son with his Father. Now, God is our Father. God has no favorites. That's important to understand. He's not a respecter of persons, just as a mother and a father. One kid, they don't love more this kid than that kid. They love them. They just love them differently. How much more our Heavenly Father loves us equally, sees us special and unique? Now, notice again in verse 9 that our Father who is in heaven. This is where he is. He he is in heaven. And that's important to understand that our Father is in heaven. And he's there watching over everything that goes on in this life. In fact, it's in Psalm, again, if you look with me, Psalm 103. 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. And his sovereignty rules over all. All See, the scripture evidently specifies heavens. There are three heavens, and sometimes we overlook that. See, there's the heaven where the, the birds are. There's the stellar heavens where the stars are. But then there's the third heaven that Paul talks about that's so important. That's the heaven where God reigns. The scripture is very, very clear. Again, look with me. I know a man in Christ who was 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know. Or out of the body I do not know. God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And this is Paul speaking, again, not calling attention to himself, but he was caught up to the very presence of God. Be it a vision or he was physically caught up, we don't understand. Most likely, I believe it was simply a vision that he was caught up. Now, what do we know about heaven if we have heaven, we have the the Bible makes very clear in Revelation, again, that there's a heavenly city. It's a new Jerusalem. It's a heavenly Jerusalem. But this city, again, is literal and it's has people in it. It has the bride, which is the, the church. The body of Christ is there. It is described, again, the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who is enrolled in heaven. It also has Those Old Testament redeemed saints, they're there in heaven. And then there's the myriads of angels, not the fallen angels, but these are the angels that had not fallen that are there. And they're all going to be in heaven. In fact, look with me at Isaiah, and this is important, Isaiah 55, 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Just as God is in heaven, his, his thoughts, his actions, everything about him is higher and is talking about not just physically, but in a spiritual sense. And then you have Revelation 21.4, and that says this, and he wipes away every tear from the eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. And the first things have passed away. I think each one of us are longing for that time in heaven. We look around and we see the pain, the, the sorrow, the wars, the immorality, the death. All of these things, they, they grieve our hearts. And heaven is a place that you and I, well, we can read about it, but you know, in reality, I don't think we really comprehend uh, really the, the beauty of heaven. What God has in really in store for you and me. Well, there's another point I want to call your attention to. It's really here God's priority. Look in verse 9 again. This is, hallowed be your name. The emphasis upon God's name, his name is to, to be set apart. It's to be sanctified. It speaks again, uh, shown as, as, as being holy something but God puts great emphasis is upon his name because his name speaks of his character. And you and I can misrepresent God. We can fail to acknowledge him as a holy God in our actions in our attitude, as if he's gone to sleep. When the world, when the church is two different places, when the church doesn't even care and show a need and a love for the world and the church turns in and becomes very selfish and self-centered. The world says, what do I want to do with God? What do I want to do with the church? Why should I be a Christian? It grieves my heart. I've heard it so many times. We're in a culture today that is so self-centered. And when he calls us to esteem others higher than ourselves shouldn't we esteem god higher than everyone else his name is to be above all names i don't want to say anything do anything that would ever misrepresent him and it shouldn't be just that when a a person comes into a pulpit every time that we open our mouth whether we're speaking the word of god or not how will the world see christ in our lives We really need to stop and ask that question. How does the world see Christ in me individually, in you individually? Because I think it's one of the greatest sins that we could ever misrepresent God. I've heard people say, well, God's such an angry God. You know, in the Old Testament, I don't like that God. I like the the New Testament God. And people don't even know how to handle the word of God. They don't even know what to say. They, they can't even explain their God. They don't even know about their God. When the world knows that the Ten Commandments, oh, certainly we don't have the Ten Commandments hanging up, but the world knows what those commandments are because the church believes them, and, and they're always pointing their finger at me. But do they know the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God? That God wishes none to perish. But all come to the saving knowledge of him. Do they experience the mercy? See, as we pray, and these things are things that we are to pray about. These are things that concern God. It should reflect in our prayer. But it, if we truly have this prayer life, and we pray, and we live a life at that attitude of prayer, pray without ceasing, then these actions should reflect in our life as well as what we say hallowed be thy name it's interesting when you look at it, ezekiel 36:23 it says i will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations which you have profaned in their midst and the nations will know that i am the lord And declares the Lord God when I prove myself to be holy among you in their sight. The context is uh, here of Israel had profaned God's name. The world didn't see him as a holy God, a loving God, a merciful God, a gracious God. Because their immoral lifestyle. Because of the anger and bitterness, their deceit in their heart. And there's, again, Ezekiel 38, 23. And look with me on that one. I I will magnify myself and sanctify myself and make myself known in the sight of many nations. And they will know that I am the Lord. and, And the Lord there is the covenant God. God puts great emphasis upon his name and we should put great emphasis upon his name. At one point, Israel, they didn't feel that they could mention God's name. They didn't even know how to pronounce it. Sometimes they would just say the name. They were afraid of offending him. But that's not common today. It's not common in the church. Even though we can boldly go to the throne of grace, but there's this lack of reverence for God. You know, the man upstairs, I've heard people talk. Bringing God down to their level. God's ways are higher than our ways. He's a holy God. Look with me again in Ezekiel 39, verse 7. My holy name I will make known in the midst of the people of Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. The nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And if there's something that this world needs to know, about God is that he is a holy God. He's, he's a holy God. He's a just and righteous. And we'll talk more about those as we go through this book. But God's ways are higher than our ways. This is important to understand. These are elements of prayer that, that should be reflecting God. You are holy. You are high. And you're lifted up. That when I see him lifted up, I see myself as a sinner. I see him in merciful, I see him in his grace, that he allows me to boldly come to this throne of grace. And certainly, I want to sanctify his name, I want to make it holy, and I want the world around me to know that he's a holy God. A God that's in love with his people. Would also recognize the importance of living consistently, with what they value in a prayer. See, and, and why I just talked about these verses about Israel, they were backslidden. God always has a remnant. And I think we need to evaluate our lives, our actions, and our attitudes. Are are we the remnant? Are we truly seeking to honor God, lift his name up? Are we really connecting with our spirit? Is he really the God of the Bible that we're praying to? Concerned about? Are we so concerned about his name and his character that we have become concerned about the things that are important to him, more important to him than the things that are in this life that are important to us? Perhaps you remember Luke. Luke 9. But it says, if anyone desire to come after him, he must deny himself. The Christian is to deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow him daily. Devoted life. He, he is to check in daily, and what is it? And one of the ways we check in and is in prayer. Lord, what is it today? Even with excitement, Lord, what is it today? With anticipation. We throw out our agendas, and we follow his bucket list. His bullet list that he has for us. And that's important to understand. And the big one here is I'm talking about is really his name. And the one way besides just lifting up his name and voices I've already mentioned is really living rightly. Not living wrong. Not profaning his name. Because that only brings dispute. Among the nations. The world is cursing God. Certainly they don't want to accept his values, but they should at least know who he is. And when I talk to sometimes people in the streets, they don't even know who he is. Because they've seen people on TV. They've seen people in the stores acting crazy. It has to stop with us. I even believe in the time we're going through. It's a time of really even testing. Yes, God's testing is just as he tests Israel. How will we act in this circumstance? Will we trust and rest and lean upon him? Or will we take things into our own hands? See, when we again, exalt him when we magnify his name. If we really believe this, this is what the world needs to see, is that we're going to value a life of holiness in our own lives. Lip service is meaningless if there's not an action to follow. This holiness speaks of a moral purity, the spiritual holiness. Holiness. Again, separation from all evil, a devotion to, to God's purpose. It's seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Not our own agendas, not our own plans, not our own kingdom. Because if we don't do these things that I'm talking about, no matter what we say, we're praying hypocritical, even like those that we're babbling. You don't have to babble. You can say all the right things and live a hypocritical life. And in that day, the Lord may say, go away. I never knew you. In contrast, it's important that if we don't do these things, we bring a disgrace and disrespect upon his holy name. His character is serious to him. So it's not just, again, setting aside with our lips, but it has to show interactions. So it requires that holy living. Well, look with me again in Psalm, again, Psalm 34. I want to call your attention to, O oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Yes, it's a, it's a prayer of exalting the name. But prayer is always followed with actions. If there's not actions to back something up, it's hypocritical. And that's what we've been talking about in, in the passages before is dealing with hypocrisy. And we'll deal with that again and again. In all of his struggle, if you stop and think about it, with this idea of of hypocrisy, I remember when I first got saved, they had these bumper stickers, and they were like these fish bumper stickers on the car. And I saw these guys driving down the freeway, and and they're, they're supposed to be driving 55 miles an hour, and they're driving 90 miles an hour. And, you know, we used to joke about it, you know, there goes the flying fish. I would never put one on my car because I had a problem with putting my foot down on that gas. But see, that wasn't... the, the, The problem wasn't putting the bumper sticker on. The problem was the foot on the gas. I needed to change. So when we see these things, sometimes we recognize there's a change. It has to come in our lives. could be speeding. Profane language. Just about Anything. It's in verse 10 we really see God's program. It's often different than ours. Notice what it says. Verse 10, it begins, Your kingdom come. It's about His kingdom. It it, it speaks in in the sense about the end times. We're looking for His kingdom to come as it is in heaven here on earth. The presence of God's kingdom in this age refers really to, to the reign of Christ. That's what we're looking for. To see him reign and rule. And certainly his kingdom has come to those who are born again because he reigns in the hearts, the hearts of his people, in the body of Christ, the church. We are to be totally different. And sometimes when we we pray something like this, and we're praying this attitude, Lord, we want your kingdom to come. I want it to be in my heart. I, I want the world to see you in me. I want them to see your peace and your love and your your kindness and your forgiveness. See, the world needs to see, again, Christ reigning, his presence in in the body of Christ, that they're one. Not the the division, that this church is better than this one. No, because we're one if we're in Christ. And that's the heart, and, and yet the church is dividing, and and yet we, we say these prayers, but they sometimes can be meaningless. And this is why they ask to pray, well, you know, if this is hypocritical, how should we pray? And he's going to follow with the actions of trusting and resting in, in God, and this is what's important. And when we pray, and we pray for his kingdom come, we're really praying that that we individually and congregationally corporately all the churches will really reflect that love of Christ. That his is again, that his laws will be obeyed. That he'll be honored. That his people will do the good works that are proclaimed to do. And they'll proclaim the good news of his kingdom. His disciples will pray for justice and righteousness and peace and mercy to be established. See, it's when we're praying for the kingdom. It's all of these things included. It's, it's not just, "Lord, your kingdom come." I pray it to come. And stopping and thinking. It's being spirit led. Let the the Spirit lead you in prayer. He'll show you what you need to pray for. It's important to understand. But outside God's will, no person will ever be permitted. to into God's presence and this should grieve our hearts because so many are professing Christians but they don't possess that relationship again look with me in Matthew seven twenty one. not everyone who says to me Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter it's about exalting him it's holding up his name it's the way we live was denying ourselves, picking up our cross and following him. It's his agenda, not our agenda. And then there, it's important to understand there's Matthew 12 50. Notice what it says For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he's my brother, my sister, and my mother. Here's reflecting, the, again, that relationship. And then in 2 Peter, it's in verses. 10 and, and through 12, it's Second Peter 3, verses 10 through 12. It says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. And since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for in the hastening and the coming of the day of God? Because that which the heavens will be destroyed and burning and the elements will melt with the intense heat. The church knows. The judgment's about to fall. And the most important thing right now is the way that we live and the way we respond to what's going on. Are we going to live in holiness? Are we going to share our faith? Are we ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within? When someone doesn't have food, will we give from our own table to share with them? Will we worry about our rights when someone else is hurting? The fact is, if we do, shame on us. Because we've missed the main point. It's about the kingdom. And kingdom, people, this is what we're going to see again and again, live differently, speak differently, act differently. Well, also in verse 10, we see God's plan. Your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's so easy to to call uh, God king, To honor him with our lips that he is king. In fact, we can do it so well that people actually believe we actually believe that. But do we believe that? We can only say we believe that if it's the way we live our lives. See, a profession, it's so easy to be false. It's a tragedy. It creates this image of false and meaningless. The king, we we really don't believe him if we live something, some different way. If we believe he's coming again and we're living like hell, what does that say? What message does it say? See, it, it's more than just the prayer. The, the prayer is to get us to realize how we are to live our lives, what we need to do. Lord, my life is not lining up in this area. Lord, I need you to convict me. I need you to to show me and strengthen me, gird me up, and bring those people in my life that will exhort me. Notice it says again, to, to pray your will to be done means truly to be concerned about what concerns God. Have you ever just sat there when you're talking to God and, and speaking to him and, and you pause for a second and you, and you ask him one question, Lord, Lord, what is it that really concerns you in my life? This is really important. God, what is it that's really important? Is there is there something in my life that really needs to change today? When I'm with couples sometimes, I'm asking that that question. Number one, if he were to change one thing in his life, what would it be? And if if she were to change one thing, what would it be? It's interesting, if those people really listen and they change it, it makes a difference in that relationship. Well, what about us? If we have a relationship with God, shouldn't we be concerned about what he sees in our lives? What's important this day and tomorrow and the next day that he would have us do instead of our own plans, our own agendas? Sometimes it seems as if I and you and others have missed the boat. We're in this culture, it's, it's all about me, it's all about us, it's about we. Down to just me. All I'm concerned about is how it affects me. I don't care about you, I don't care about the next generation. I'm so thankful for the generations that went before us that preserved the Bible, the word of God for you and me, that we can understand that word of God. So when we're to pray your will to be done, we're to pray for his purposes and his plans. It means we really need to understand what his purpose is. What is his plan? People use that expression. What's God's plan for you in this life? And people rarely even know how to answer that. Desire to be fulfilled in a life. Or in the lives of families. What's God's plan for you as a, a family? As simple as I think that is, people struggle with that. God reveals it, though, in his word. He reveals it in the Bible. By trusting the Holy Spirit's leading in our hearts, we can understand the will of God. We pray and say, God, reveal your will. Show me what your purpose is. Show me how it's to to apply to, to me. It's so easy, though, if we're honest, to really get it wrong. Wrong understanding. Of knowing what God's will is, and lacking a commitment to even know His will. Perhaps you've been like me. You have a knock, knock on the door, and somebody comes up the door. And one time it was the the Jehovah Witnesses, and they wanted to explain what they believe, what the Bible says. And I ask them the question. I ask them this. It's very important to understand is if I can show you that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, would you believe it? And they say, no. They've just told me they no longer have a teachable spirit. They really don't want to know God's will. They really don't want to know the truth. They say, well, we're the only right ones and everyone else is wrong. And sometimes I've heard people look down and talk down at at the the Jehovah Witnesses, talk down on the Mormons, blinded by the God of this world, it should grieve our hearts. They need to see our our love and our grace and mercy, and we need to open the word with them. The fact is, we have to be careful we don't fall into that same rut they're in. In 2 Timothy, I like this. It's in 2 Timothy 2.15. It's important to understand, again, notice what the scripture says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. As a workman who does not need to be ashamed, but accurately handling the word of truth. This last year, there there's some people on YouTube, and they're using this verse to make other verses say something else, that they're rightly dividing this word, rightly handling it, teaching a false doctrine. What this means is that we need to individually understand God's purpose and plan and the truth of God's word. And and this is what the world doesn't understand. They're, They're not teachable. Psalm 143, the prayer here is, teach me to do your will. For you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Now, it's true that God has raised up teachers, evangelists, you have the Holy Spirit. And as, as someone is teaching, the Holy Spirit will convict you, and you'll either suppress that, or if he convicts you, you'll respond, or if he speaks through that word, that it will confirm what you already know that God has already showing you. A prayer that we need to add to this list is that, Lord, help me always be teachable, always open. To what you say. When I go through and I teach a passage. I've taught before. I I like to always go back and restudy it. Go through. Re-evaluate it. Make sure that I'm understanding it. Completely the way the author intended. Not just falling back in, in yesterday's teaching. I need fresh manna. Because I'm growing and maturing just as you're growing and maturing. And and God will reveal things to you as he grows. Well, look with me. We see God's provision. It's in verse 11. After we prayed and focused upon God, it comes back to us. And I love this. It says in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. I love that because it says give us our bread. The words are our and us. It overcomes, really, when you stop and think about selfishness. And it shows concern for others. Because really, that's our problem, is selfishness. So, he says, give us this day, this daily bread. Any person that goes to bed hungry should be the concern of all the other believers. We should be willing to step to the plate. Notice the term he uses is daily bread. It, it speaks really of the basic needs each day. He's not praying for next month, next year. He's not pay, praying for a, a big bank account, a credit card. Just the daily needs. And I love that because, see, this day eliminates worries and anxieties about tomorrow and in the, in the distant future. You know, because it's all in the hands of God. And, and, and there's a perfect peace there. See, and, and going back to Habakkuk, perhaps you remember it, the just will live by faith. And this is what we, we get to do, is we get to live by faith. We, we know that God will provide. He's promised to provide, and that's important to understand. So our daily bread, it's really every believer has a portion for himself. It's our daily bread. Everyone is to, to be provided for. And I love that. No one's neglected. But here's the real challenge this challenge is our pride. Anyone struggle with pride? I think all of us struggle with. With pride, because if I need help, it's very really hard to say, I need help. This is so important to understand. God has it this way that to strip away the pride, the pride will get in my way of really worshiping Him and exalting Him and, and lifting up His name. We just simply don't want to be dependent upon someone else. Wives don't want to be dependent on their husband. They don't want to go to their, their husband and ask for money. Or maybe it was the husband going and asking for the wife. She has her account. He has her account. And, and, and the bickering goes on. It, it, somehow we've missed the point. We're to be one. And that's all because of pride. Because we can't work together. We can't be one. I like Proverbs. It's another prayer that's special. Proverbs 30, verse 8, I'll begin. And it's important to understand. It's verse 8 and 9. Follow with me. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is my portion. That I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that that I would be in want and steal and profane the name of God. See, whatever prayer, whatever it is, that we're always concerned about God's name, God's character. God is good. He has been so good to us. And we really need to think about that and do our lives reflect that. And I think that's very important, that we we trust in him, we rest in him. It's interesting, when I think about this, Jesus wanted his disciples, again, it's important to understand, again, to live in a state of constant dependence upon God and his provision. Constant dependence upon God and his provision. The disciple, after confidently asking God to provide his daily needs, he can go about the kingdom. Just think about it, he can go about kingdom business. Relieved of all the worries and the cares. Not bogged down about the money and the worries of this world. Because he knows that God's just going to take care of everything. As Christians, we we know that. We, we understand that. And that's so true. But yet, we fail to live that out. Well, look with me in Matthew 6.25 through thirty four, it says for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor for your body as to what you'll put on. Is not is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth more than they? And who are you being worried can worry and add a single hour to your life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field grow and they do not toil nor do they spin. Yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like all of these things. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, throwing in the furnace, why not much more provide and clothe you? You of little faith, do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what we will wear in clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. For your Heavenly Father knows what your needs, all these things are. Now stop. Your Heavenly Father knows all these things. And then he goes on to the most important verses, I think, in the Sermon on the Mount. It's what's called the key to the Sermon on the Mount. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day is enough trouble of its own. Boy, this day has been a lot of trouble. You know how that is in our lives. But you know what? God takes care of everything. His purpose for you and me is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is his will. This is what we do. There's not a question about it. And all these things will be added. See, he's going to take care of it. Now, don't get bogged down. Move on to the glory of God. See, this is what he's talking about. God wants us again to redirect our energies to what really matters. So often I I hear people addressing this and addressing that, and I just quietly say nothing. But in reality, some of the things I hear, it's not what's important. It's not what's important. God may take you home today, He may take me home tomorrow. Is your house in order? How is your relationship with him and your wife and your friends? Sadly, we, we, we put emphasis upon the wrong things in this life that will never go into eternity with us. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. I love that. In fact, look with me in Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3. You shall remember all the way in which the Lord your God has led you through the wilderness for these 40 years. He will humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry, fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did the fathers know. That he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, But man lives by everything that proceedeth from the mouth of the Lord. Now, the thing I want to call your attention to here is, is God led them into this situation. God was testing them. God's testing you. God's testing me. I think we're going through a big test in this country right now, in the world, in fact. Will we trust in the Lord and lean not on our own understanding, or will we trust in our own understanding and not lean on the Lord? You can't do both. It's either one or the other, and it's, it's very important to understand. Now he, he again in verse 11, he says, "Give us this day our daily bread." Now what he's talking about here is John 6:35. And Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will not hunger." And he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the very substance in the wilderness. He was the bread that came from heaven, the scripture says. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. There's our priority. God values his name. The next thing he values more than anything else is his word, which speaks of all these things that I've been describing tonight. It speaks of his character. Again, look at that verse, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He is all that you ever need. Well, I want to take it a step further. We need the bread of life, and we need daily fellowship. This is important. The bread, when, when in that Eastern, Middle Eastern culture, when they came together, they broke the bread. It, it, it was, there was an intimacy. Eating from the same loaf meant they're one. When we come together and, and we eat and we partake of the bread, and it makes us one in Him. And that's if we partake of it. But oftentimes, a lot of people spit it out and walk away and. I don't believe as you believe. Well, show me in the Bible what you don't believe so I can understand. Maybe there's something I've said wrong. Well, again, look with me in verse 12. God's pardon. And I love God's pardon. It says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Wow. Wow. There's a lot of angry people in this world that profess to be Christians, don't they? Walking around anger and bitter and lashing out at people. Walking in unforgiveness and bitterness. That's a sad situation. Notice what it says again. And for, and the prayer is, and forgive us our debts. We owe God a debt. This is why he had to die on the cross for us as we have also forgiven others. See, the idea is uh, forgiving others is a reflection of a person who's truly repentant. The one who has this regenerate heart. The one that's really been born again. And it's only that that makes this forgiveness possible. So when a, a person's professing believer for 20 years and they walk in bitterness and anger, there's a great chance they're not even believers. It doesn't mean you can't be angry. All of us struggle with anger from time to time. That capacity's in all of us. I remember recently asking about somebody on the mainland. How's so-and-so doing? Well, you know, they're always mad. They're always angry. They're always throwing things. It's been 25 years. But every week he's in a church. And what does that say about the name of God? What does it say about his relationship with God? And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven others. See, that's where it really begins. When we recognize that Jesus died upon the cross for you and me, then it's so much easier to forgive others. Who am I to point a finger at someone else? Find fault with someone else. Very clear. uh, Judge not another man's servant. We have these standards. We expect Him to act as we do, but at the same time, we're hypocritical. What's interesting here, as we look at this word, those who have experienced God's forgiveness naturally forgive. Those who have really received it, it's not a problem. It just flows naturally. They're truly repentant. And they want people to know that forgiveness and that that hope is in Jesus. Now the Greek grammar indicates that a disciple prays for forgiveness for God only after he's first expressed forgiveness for others. Think of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Shouldn't that be our hearts? When your wife, when your husband has hurt you, wronged you, your boss. Especially those of the world that do not even know him. Acting naturally. See, sinners are debtors to God. Simply because of the violation of God's law it was, is broken. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And, and knowing that he spared us, we should certainly want to spare others. Again, I, I'm reminded, again, it's it's probably one of my favorite verses. Again, Ephesians 4, 30 and 32. Notice what it says. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed to the day of redemption. So we can, first of all, grieve God's Spirit. How? With the bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander in our hearts. So what he says here again is, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. How are we doing in this task as he led Israel in the wilderness? How are we acting? It's not enough just to, to speak the right words, and we call them buzzwords of Christianity. It's living them. Are we angry and bitter? Or are we forgiving and kind and caring? Or Are we concerned about our witness and how the world sees Christ? Taking advantage of the times and sharing the gospel when we, we have that opportunity. Well, there's another verse I want to share with you. It's Colossians. Again, it's Colossians 2.13. Look with me. When you were dead and your transgressions in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled the certificate of debt concerning the decrees against us, which has, again, was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Gosh, those are powerful words. This is what Jesus did for you and me. But I have to ask the question, When I look at this, have I forgiven others' transgressions? Have I canceled their debt because what Jesus has done for me? To say one thing and do another is not a prayer that's pleasing unto God. The problem is, again, sin separates man from God. And is therefore man's greatest enemy is sin and the greatest problem because sin, again, dominates our mind and our hearts. Well, look with me at Isaiah, Isaiah 59 nine two. but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. So he does not hear if they won't hear God. Why do people pray? God's not going to hear if this sin separates. But see, there's there's again this provision. It's in verse 12. And forgives us of our debts. Isn't that wonderful? Christ forgives us of our debts. The scripture commanded that God's people uh, to forgive again the economic debts every 7th and 50th year so that people wouldn't be permanently impoverished. The Jewish teachers, though, this is wonderful. And this is, I'm speaking about the remnant at this time. Again, however, also recognize that sin is a debt before God. And that's what we're talking about. We owe a debt to God. And the debt that we owe to God right now is love. And love covers a multitude of sin. And it brings forgiveness. Well, the plea is simply, asking forgiveness implies really confession. Sometimes we want to tell, well, you've got to confess every sin. You know, when a person says, you know, God, forgive me, they're acknowledging they're a sinner. Sometimes they just need to take that baby step and then we can come alongside them. Sometimes someone's wronged us and they ask for forgiveness. Well, what did you really do? What did you really think? And we open a can of worms and then we're mad. And how can we pray to God? See, sin just infects another person. Well, notice the prerequisite in verse 12, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Again, Jesus reemphasizes the importance of forgiving others. This is a priority for, really for us as believers, to forgive one another. To love one another. Even when people hurt us and when they wrong us. Well, look with me in verse 13. God's protection. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, wow, this is a big one when you stop and think about it. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us? Come on. From evil? Now, I've heard so many people, well, you know, God tempted me, and they're angry at God. But notice again, if you, you look at James 13, James 1.13 has, has a total different view what it says there. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. This is important to understand. God tests people. Certainly, he tested Abraham in Genesis 22. He tested Israel in Exodus 16. He did that. He tested Hezekiah. His purpose for, for testing was to strengthen the character, to bring out the best in a person. But he never tempted them. He never lured them. Never drew them into sin. That's important to understand. So God may allow something, but understand that whatever you're going through, it is a testing. Anyone going through a testing tonight? I think all of us are going through a testing of some capacity. Deliver us from evil. And I think each one of us need to to be delivered from evil if you stop and think about it. Uh, It was a a guy named Bill Munz that wrote this, and I kind of reworded a little bit. And this is my prayer of all who desperately desire to to be kept from the power of sin. It says it's it's the heart cry of daily salvation for the power of sin and Satan's one life. And he goes on in this way. There's a fine line between testing and trusting God. And I think all of us agree and we don't really know where that balance is. But here's some examples to, to really think about. Because the testing is the Lord, in a sense. And how we deal with them is very, very important. Because if the Lord is testing us, how will we respond? So if you drive recklessly in your car, as an example, and then they think somehow God will keep you safe from all the accidents, you're really testing God. Think about that. You're testing Him. If you spend your money without thought of saving any, it's the act of testing God. While God often keeps us safe when we do stupid things, there's no guarantee that he'll do it the next time. Jesus knew the difference, refused to jump off the temple. Testing God would simply to catch him was not his choice. On the other hand, trusting the Lord is not living in fear. And you have these two extremes. God has made very specific promises to his children, among others, to keep us safe. Of course, when you stop and think about it, he may keep us safe by allowing us to die and bring us home safely. He can keep us safe again by bringing us home or leaving us here. God makes no promises about even the absence of pain or the presence of pleasure that so many think. Nevertheless, we can trust that nothing will happen to us unless it's filtered through the fingertips of God. It doesn't mean we go through this life stupid. It means we use and exercise wisdom, common sense we need to check our motives. Why are we doing? Why are we saying what we're doing? Are we acting out of fear? Are we acting in indifference? We need to gain wise counsel from godly friends. Most of all, we need to go to God in prayer. We need to listen. Not just talk. Listen. Listen and prepared to listen. But here's the problem. What if we're wrong? Well, then you got it wrong. Welcome to life. It's a fact that we will all blow it from time to time. It is in the making of decisions and really observing the consequences that we learn to grow and trust in God and God alone. See, there's our key. Each of us, as God's people, are target target of Satan's uh, Satan's opposition and attack. And the fact is, no matter what, so many within the body of Christ think. On our own, we cannot overcome. We only overcome in Him. On our own. We can't even resist evil purposes on our own and so easily be deceived. It's for this reason we must rely completely and totally upon God. Praying to our Father in heaven, exalting Him. Thanking Him for what He has done, given us. Ask and rely upon Him for wisdom and strength, Defeat the schemes of the enemy. They will react in such a way that will bring glory and honor to his name. Well, look with me in verse 13 as we begin winding down. We see God's preeminence. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. You can sing that Several times, several have sang that, even almost like a chant. And what it is is a doxology of the Bible. It's simply a a praise of God. The last sentence here, as I'm reading here, is is removed from many of the Roman Catholic and most modern, even Protestant uh, Bibles. It was lost in in the translation. Some of the translations didn't carry it through, but it's a doxology. It's in our New American Standard is showing that it's in part of some of them. It's just written in italics or sometimes they do brackets around it because they want to be as accurate as they can and there's some translations that show that. But in many of the original texts, somehow it was lost. Well, look with me in verse 14 and 15, our final verses, for if you forgive others, and notice he goes back to that same thing for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Well, let me tell you what this is not saying. That's really important to understand. It's not talking about losing of salvation, but as I mentioned earlier in Isaiah 59 nine two, it's our sins that separate us from God. When a person is going through life, unconfessed sin. How can you acknowledge God if you have sin in your life? He's a holy God. His name is to be hallowed. And the action doesn't say that. So it's important to understand that God cannot hear our prayers unless we're truly repentant. It's our sins. It's separated. We we say we're walking in the Spirit. We say we're doing this. It's easy to say. But if you want to have fellowship with God, you'll confess your sins to God. He's faithful and just to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You will confess your sins to one another, as James talks about. You will get right. You will pray to your Heavenly Father, You will acknowledge him as a loving father and know how much he cares for you, the intimacy that he has. And you will trust in him and lean not on your own understanding. Well, stand with me, please. Father, we thank you tonight for your precious word. We thank you for the grace that you have given us, the hope that lies within Jesus and Jesus alone. We as a congregation, as a people, as believers that are listening tonight, we ask for forgiveness. Lord, there's times that we sin and we don't even realize it. Lord, forgive us. We don't want anything to be between us and you. We don't want to rob you of your glory. We want to honor you not just with our lips but Lord, with our lives. All that we are, in Jesus' name, amen.